Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the BP Movie Journal, the movie, no, the show that we do where we talk about the stuff that we've seen since the last time we did one of these. Uh, Tyler, take a drink of your Propel. We'll sit here quietly and wait. Oh, people are going to hate that. I would hate that. (laughs) Um, So, uh, you don't have, because of school uh, and work, uh, this being the end of the quarter, uh, you literally have no, this is just going to be me. I have no TV. I have no movies. I could recount uh, the subjects of various papers to you. Um, I don't know if you know or not, but the advent of television changed film. Did you you know that? Um, Well, sure, with the aspect ratio. Sure. We should do an episode. Okay. This is not, we're not going to be able to do this next week, unfortunately, um, because we'll need an expert. But we should do, because we haven't done like an academic episode in a while. It's been a while. We should do an episode on aspect ratios. Sounds good to me. Because it is, it is fascinating. Like I know a that, number of people we could ask. Yeah, me point. too. <laughs> me too. So. Um, oh, that, that would be a fun episode to just talk about the history of aspect ratios. Would it be fun? Do you uh, think listeners would find it fun? If they're like me, which yeah. I, I assume a lot of them are, because mm. I find that stuff really interesting. I guess I find it interesting up to a point. Um, I think, you know what, here's what I like. I like when filmmakers utilize aspect ratio sort of the way like Tarantino did with Kill Bill volume two and uh, Wes Anderson did with uh, Grand Budapest Hotel and that kind of thing. I feel like I like when people play with it uh, with it artistically, but not unlike technical aspects of the camera. I find it interesting up to a point, but I'm much more interested in how people use it. But at the same time, like somebody choosing to shoot, you know, cinemascope, or uh, right. uh, or Panavision or something like that after that has long since died. Yeah. That is interesting to me. Um, you know, like I remember but I like the like one off like weird movies, like experiments that someone tried, like sure. the Napoleon movie that was essentially in like four to one or something. Yeah. It was meant like meant to be on like multiple yeah. screens. Yeah. It's basically um, just a line, just a horizontal line. <laughs> yeah. Um, and now you've got, uh, we'll save, I won't go into de- in too depth here, but you've got, uh, essentially a new aspect ratio standard coming up for TV because right. TVs are one seven, eight, right? But now you've got shows like stranger things or house of cards or, or uh, some other upcoming ones that I think the handmaid's tale, uh, coming up, uh, where they're like, well, we still want it to feel cinematic. So we're going to shoot 2.0. So you're still getting letterboxes yeah. on your on your made like stuff that's made for TV is still being letterboxed on the TV, which is so yeah. strange to me. Um, you know what I mean? Because yeah. like that's I feel like that might be the first time that some something has been made with the letterboxing in mind outside of there have been music videos who have, who have, sure. who have done that, uh, that, that have done that, of course, you know, that, that are made for one format and shot knowing that in the format that it's yeah. intended for, it's going to be letterboxed. I find that so strange that 2.0 is becoming like this prestigious, uh, yeah. like saying, Oh, we're a, we're a serious TV show. See, can't you tell by the black bars at the top and bottom? Yeah. That's, <laughs> that fits into what I'm talking about. I'll, I'll be it from a dumb, uh, point of view which is you know people understanding that there is a certain whether the larger public is aware of it there is a certain 
awareness of the black bars and this means movie. Right. Yeah. And we want to show that it's still a show, but we wanted to have the prestige of a movie. And by the way, the idea of film having more prestige than TV, it's interesting. It's fortuitous that I took a, that I TA'd for a film history class. Same time I was taking a TV history class Mm -hmm. Um, because the two, you know, one starts earlier, but the two eventually start to just essentially converse with each other. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's so fascinating that because there was a day, a, a day, you know, or a time when film was seen as the, this prestigious thing, not unlike theater was viewed as prestigious as opposed to film. Right. Uh, but I feel like it, it astonishes me that people still think that whether they sp- yeah. uh, say it out loud or not, that people still think that, um, that's an episode right there. It is. All right. Um, so I have six movies and this is, I'm not going to be able, I'm not going to go in depth on very many of them because I don't think you've seen any of them and I don't feel like just talking for 50 minutes right. here. So, uh, this is questions. This might be the shortest BP movie journal we've ever done. Um, just because, uh, we don't have, we won't have as much back and forth. I can so, make some sound effects with my, with my mouth. I would rather you didn't, uh, and the listeners would rather you didn't. They told me, <laughs> All right. You know what? I stand corrected. <laughs> like that. It was delightful. Um, all right. So I saw the new Cordiata, uh, film, uh, after the storm. Uh, I'm a big fan of Hirokazu Cordiata. I think is how you say his, his name. Um, uh, and, uh, after the storm did not disappoint. It's not a, it's not on the level of our little sister, which was his last film, which, uh, is, terrific um but after the storm have you have you seen i think still walking is probably the big because i would got the criterion release that's maybe the big one i don't think uh, i've, seen I've always been a fan of nobody knows which was the first one i saw um and then he also made a film i think it was either right before or right after still walking called i wish uh that i thought was really good um and there was like father like son uh anyway so uh after the storm is basically it's the story of a guy who is uh, a one-time successful novelist who's now scraping by as a private detective uh, or a private detective's assistant, essentially, essentially, um, and has, through 15 years of being a fuck-up, has lost his um, his family. His, his wife is divorced him, and he only um, gets to see his son one weekend a month, and that's being threatened to take away because he's three months behind on alimony payments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's basically a movie about him trying to get himself back into his, his ex-wife and son's life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, like a lot of creative movies, it's not, uh, it's not sentimental, but it's also not unsentimental, uh, yeah. you know, or not like consciously unsentimental. It's just sort of, it just sort of presents, you the, the the situations and the scenes and the, the his camera tends to just sort of hang back a bit and let the scenes go on for a while um uh, until you sort of feel immersed in it and that's his uh, he gets great performances out of his out of his actors in all of his all of his movies um and ends up getting to some big ideas which i think after the storm what it's really about is about the idea of um, the question of, is it ever too late? Mm-hmm. Like for whatever, you know, mm-hmm. to, to be the person that you'd like to be, is it ever too late? Yeah. Um, uh, and it's, it's a very touching, touching movie. Um, after that, I watched, uh, a documentary that I had been 
meaning to see for a couple of years. Actually, I guess it's a docudrama because I think a lot of it is reenactments. I'm not sure. Uh, that's a, that's a blurry line. Um, I would mean to see this movie for a couple of years. It's a Chinese movie because I had seen, I think I can't remember what movie I was seeing a couple of years ago, but I saw a trailer, um, for this movie called paths of the soul. Okay. And the trailer is just, there's no words in it. Well, there, there is some like, um, uh, chanting like religious chanting, but it's just these people walking down a highway through various parts of, uh, you know, the, that, China, Tibet, part of the, of the, of the world. Um, and you're seeing all these different terrains, uh, you know, and they're just walking and they have like these essentially like they're like the hands sandals, like Mm -hmm. they have sandals on their hands essentially. And they walk and with, uh, they walk about eight steps or I'd say six to eight steps. Every couple of steps, they touch the sandals together above their head, in front of their face, in front of their chest. And then they prostrate themselves on the, on the highway. Yes. And okay. It, so these people travel like 1200 miles to get to the Holy Mount, uh, doing that every like 10 steps the entire way. Uh, and the trailer was just that, mm-hmm. just them walking. And I was so fat. It was so beautiful. The, the countryside and it was so mesmerizing weirdly, like the, 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 the rhythm you'd hear of the wood, like clacking together and then like sliding on the, yeah. on the pavement. Um, and the movie ended up, being about half that and a lot of, and I think the, the stuff that felt more like reenactments, I got the director, um, uh, Zhang Yang, I think is his name. Um, he really did follow these people, the pretty much the whole journey. And, um, but I think some of the stuff when they're in the camps at night, um, or when they take a break, when they reach a town to like, uh, resupply or to get like menial jobs to buy supplies for the next leg of the journey, whatever that, reenactment stuff felt a little bit too conventional too theatrical in a way. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I, I kept wish, like I was like, can we just get, if this movie were just two hours of them walking, I might be more into it. Yeah. Uh, can we just get back to how beautiful it is? Um, uh, and how fascinating it is that, that they do this. Um, I don't know, but you, you, you'd heard of this movie. Yeah. I remember. And now that you mention it, I remember seeing the trailer and thinking it was hypnotic mm-hmm. and, uh, and I, I mean, obviously, it's just one of the many movies that looks interesting and I just never get around to seeing. But now that you mention it, like it's just it, it all came flooding back to me and thing like, yeah, that would be interesting to see. But I guess I just watch the trailer that, again. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said, it, they go twelve hundred miles and you get to see like sometimes it's like they're literally in like a snowstorm. Sometimes they're in like more almost like tropical areas where they're in like they you know, they have to have t-shirts they have like there's a group of them but they also have someone in a tractor pulling all of their supplies who just yeah chugs along behind them and the sound of the tractor becomes part of the that rhythmic <laughs> sound of everything yeah. uh, with all their supplies because they set up camp on the side of the road every night um and then they meet other people who are making the journey as well on on the way it's it might be worth watching i just wish like it's two hours long and i feel like uh, it could be if it were like 80, 85 minutes, it would be better. I think it, yeah. it spends too much time. And that's kind of like the only other movie I've seen by this guy is called quitting from 2001, which is another one. It's like, it's, it's a movie. It's not a documentary cause it's all reenactment, but it's about, it's the actual true story of this Chinese actor, um, going through rehab and overcoming his addictions mm-hmm. and everyone in the movie from his family to the doctors, the rehab facility are the real people playing themselves. So it's like a full on reenactment and that's 
fascinating. That's why I wanted to watch the movie, but it also had that same falseness to it. I, yeah. I, I, I never really liked quitting. Hmm. Um, all right. You've seen close up, I assume, right? Uh, I never have. No. Oh boy. Oh, I think you'd love it. Okay. Um, moving on, um, to my, uh, I haven't said this out loud because I fell so far short last year. Um, but I do want to try to watch 52 films by women this year, by which I mean 52 films that I have not seen before that are directed, uh, by women. Um, and so I made some headway there with some films I hadn't seen before, uh, both, uh, mid nineties, American independent, uh, very low budget independent movies. Uh, first off, I watched an incredible movie called the watermelon woman. Oh, I saw that. You saw that? I saw it last uh, last year. Did uh, we last, ta- last quarter. We must have talked about it in the movie journal then. Yeah. Um, remind me what you thought of it. Um, I thought it was very interesting. I There are parts I liked and parts I didn't, um, but I thought it was perpetually fascinating and often quite amusing. Mm-hmm. There are a couple moments here and there where it's it's very much an independent film and there are scenes that definitely feel that, but I love it's it's integration of, you know, speaking to what you were just talking about real documentary, except it's not real. The watermelon woman is not a real person, but right. it was based on real people. So for those she's that documenting in sort of a real way, it's so the movie is about the director plays a version of herself as the main character. Yes. And the version of herself in the movie is making a documentary about a, a black actress from the thirties and forties, um, named Faye Richards, who was known as the watermelon woman. Yeah. But in our real life, that's not a real person. Like right. Cheryl Dunya, the director of the watermelon woman made this person up, um, as a way to talk about things that there aren't a lot of records on. Yeah. And especially she made her, you know, th- this fake character made her from Philadelphia, where the movie is set and yeah. also made her a lesbian, which most of the characters or most of the main characters yeah. in the watermelon woman are. And that, and it, I think I, I was fascinated by the movie because it's it's entertaining throughout. I think like a lot of it is fun and funny. Her best friend, the character Tamara, is a yeah. delightful comic, comic and dramatic creation. And that like a lot of the big laughs come from her, yeah. but also some of the most the biggest like dramatic tension comes from the way that they're growing apart as as friends over the course yeah. of the movie. So it's entertaining to watch throughout, but it also uses its the the things it comes up with to have so many different conversations about, you know, what it means to be a black gay woman in the 1990s, as opposed to what it might have meant in the 1930s. And and to have this conversation about, um, uh, I guess it's about intersectionality because, um, like one of the things that happens, uh, I'm I'm telling you, you know, you saw Mm -hmm. it, uh, Faye Richards, the watermelon woman, the, the movie had, uh, or is, speculated to have had a relationship with uh, a female, a white female director. Right. Um, and, and, and yet when they interview Faye's uh, surviving lover from the last 20 years of her life, who's a black woman, she, she's like, why do you want to make this white woman a part of the story? This isn't, you know, no. um, connecting Faye or making her a part of this white director's story is not Faye's story. And in the meantime, you've got Cheryl, the char- the character, starting a new relationship with a white woman yeah. and her best friend, Tamara, um, not really being cool with that. It's, yeah. You've got these things playing out. These like these, these, these foils, uh, these reflections. And um, I, I think at the time, I think it bothered me that the reflections were so close that they were, 
the same thing basically, but in different times. Mm-hmm. Um, but in retrospect, a lot of the stuff that bothered me about the film have kind of melted away and the film's charms, uh, have, have stayed with me. And the idea that by having there's Cheryl and uh, Rachel, no Faye. Um, uh-huh. yeah. By having their stories be so similar mm-hmm. and, and, but then having people respond in a similar way, it, it points to this idea that, Oh, maybe things have not changed right. even in a community that one would think is more, open it's like no no no, not really yeah it's still we have this way that we have this thing that we believe we have this way that we live and you are you are breaking that not even code but just you know you're you're going against this understanding that i thought we had and there's yeah there's a lot in the movie that i thought was very very interesting yeah um and i also think it's a it's a textbook example of what can be done You, you often hear people say like um, when, when there's conversations about representation, you know, often people say, if you're not seeing the kind of movies you want to see, pick up a camera and make that kind of movie. This is, yeah. this is case. This is the best case example of that. Cause yeah. you, I mean, this is a, 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 again, I think it's a terrific movie, but it's also a movie like you don't see a movie in which almost every character is of color and yeah. almost every character is some degree or another of queer. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's, it's a, it's a wonderful, fully realized world that also finds time to have other little, um, it, it finds little diversions, even though the movie's like less than 90 minutes, I think, but yeah. it finds little diversions like her being, uh, she's going to shoot, um, like, uh, you know, B roll or whatever of like, a uh, a building that used to be one of the places where Faye Richards sang when yeah. it was a club. Uh, and the police mistake her for a, a, male and be yeah. a crackhead uh who has stolen this camera she's holding yeah. um to try to sell it for crack is what they're assuming and and arrest her and it's like it's a little side alley that isn't really a part of the narrative but i like that she fit um interesting stuff like that in there i don't know i keep uh, okay every movie i see that's released in the year that i'm watching it mm-hmm. i keep a list for our top 10 yeah. you know but i also have started ever since they started uh doing the film discoveries list at the end of every year for the rupert pupkin speaks blog uh which is one of my favorite things that i do uh, all, all year i also have a running discoveries list and i will say we're only three months into the year but uh the watermelon is in watermelon woman is in first position right now for mm-hmm. uh my favorite film discovery of of 20, 2017 in what capacity did you see it like uh, did you it's on heard of it and oh okay yeah okay. I, I think it, it played at a rep house somewhere here recently and i it missed did. it yeah uh and so i had it on my list um of things to see and it's it's on fandor um no yeah who aren't a sponsor, but, uh, um, if it were on movie, I'd have watched it on a movie. Indeed. Um, and then also on Fandor again, not a sponsor. Uh, and you might've seen this one too. Um, Kelly Reichardt's debut river of grass. I'm not. Okay. Um, this was a fascinating movie because it is, I think it's a very good movie, but it's also like self conscious and clever and meta in a very nineties way and mm. also in a very, the opposite of what I think Kelly Reichardt now right. way. Um, and so that was really fascinating to think this is like Kelly Reichardt came out of this. It's not a bad movie at all, but basically it's, it's such a, it's such a meta movie because essentially it's a version of the, 
young lovers on a crime spree road trip movie, except they're not actually lovers. Their crime spree is petty at best and they never actually leave Miami. (laughs) So so it's it's weird. Like just people walking around. It's like this stagnant version of, you know, anything from gun crazy to California to Bonnie and Clyde to Mm. Badlands to natural born killers. But, um, it's just like the characters hanging around and kind of being fuck ups. Um, and it's, uh, it's very funny. It's also very short. Um, and, uh, uh, very, well photographed not enough to make me want to like spend a lot of time in miami not like i've i've been to miami i was younger maybe i'd like it now but um so humid i don't know if i can handle it anyway all right wow we are making great time oh yeah yeah do you have anything to say while i take a drink of water or should i just take a long slow pull how was that Oh man. <laughs> there we go. Okay. That killed a few seconds. <laughs> um, you know, there's no minimums, uh, with the movie journal. We can just be done when we're done. We don't yeah. have to hit a certain amount of time. Um, yeah, I don't have so many people to get their money's worth. <laughs> Nobody's paying for this. Yeah. No sponsors. No, nobody. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. We don't have to do this. Um, although you know what, if Fandor wanted to uh, snatch up the movie journal, that's fine. <laughs> Let's pit these companies against each other. <laughs> I think we have said no advertising on the movie journal. Uh, sort of. Yes. Or outside advertising. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about our own stuff. Certainly go to battleship com and pick up, uh, the, all of our premium content for 25 bucks, uh, for the month of March. It's a limited time only. That's, uh, what is that? Like 80 bucks worth of content, 75, 80 bucks, uh, about 75, yeah. 75 bucks worth of content for $25. That's two thirds off. Indeed. Um, and that's only until the end of March. But if you're, if you're look, obviously you're going to pay for that content. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you'll love it. And then you'll say, wait a second, I have more money. <laughs> what can I do with it? Well, I've got good news. If you head over to more than one lesson.com, you oh, can, you can uh, contribute to my uh, my Kickstarter for a book that I'm uh, publishing called Worth Watching, which is just a collection of my reviews and uh, film essays, uh, the point of which is to have something to sell at the various uh, uh, conventions and film festivals that I have uh, tables at. And uh, I, it basically came about because um, la- at last year's International Christian Film Festival, I'd be selling books and DVDs and people would pick up the book and they'd say, Oh, did you write this? And I would have to say, no, I did not write that. (laughs) Um, but, uh, but it would be nice to say yes. Um, and also a big part of this, the, the reviews are not Christian themed by any stretch of the imagination. Um, there is one section where I talk about faith-based films, but the rest of it is just, you know, straightforward reviews. Um, but, I'm really trying to push in certain critical in certain Christian circles how important it is to take a uh, a critical attitude towards art and towards film specifically, and uh, as lofty as it might sound, to be able at these festivals and stuff to be able to say here is a book that can maybe get you started um uh, that's kind of the point of this so um it's already funded but we could always use more money so i can order more copies and stuff like that well done but that is after only after you take full advantage of our bp 10 year anniversary sale well yeah because that only goes through march 31st exactly whereas the kickstarter is available through april 15th that's correct tax day 
Indeed. Um, all right. Uh, last two um, movies. I saw a, a documentary um, that I'm really glad I, I saw um, and I'm eager to write uh, a review of called Citizen Jane Battle for the City. And it's a documentary about a woman named Jane Jacobs. Um, but more so than just about her, it's about what a city is. Because <laughs> um, it it looks at this part... Uh, most of the Jane Jacobs work took place in the fifties to the seventies. Um, but it starts in the 1930s in this movement of, um, utopian city planners who had these ideas of the future being automobile centric and people living in towers and the residential commercial recreational industrial parts of town all having their own sort of separate place and they had these are people who had big ideas they were utopians i think i used that word already they really felt that this was the best thing for people mm-hmm. um and they convinced a lot of people including jane jacobs who uh, was a um uh, essentially like an architecture reporter like architecture mm-hmm. journalist um who wrote glowingly about these plans. Uh, but then once they started to get built, they, um, started to really not work. And what we're talking about here is like public housing projects, um, which were notorious, uh, failures. Um, uh, because basically the problem, this is me. This is not what's in the movie. This is my own personal, uh, opinion. The problem with any kind of utopian thinking is that it tends to require, human beings behave in a way that human beings don't behave. And that's kind of what, what happened here um, is that uh, this isolated tower living off the street, high rise living um, is it encourages antisocial behavior and it especially exacerbates. uh, And this is what one of the talking heads in the movie says the, um, the antisocial uh, and pathological tendencies that uh, tend to flower in poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so Jane Jacobs, who had written, who was very positive on this stuff, once it started to fall apart, she was like, why do, do these people, these things keep getting built? And so the, mo- the movie kind of, while it acknowledges these utopian builders and city planners who had good intentions going in, it also suggests or outright accuses them of in the decades after world war two, when it became clear that this wasn't working, they kept going because they'd convinced everyone and the money was rolling in. Essentially mm-hmm. um, cities were paying for, for this. There was huge federal, uh, you know, billions of dollars in federal money uh, being funneled into, into these city projects. And so these people were reaping the benefit of, uh, a whole lot of money. Um, and so Jane Jacobs became sort of, she was still thought of herself as a journalist, but sort of became a de facto community organizer. Um, and then ended up writing a book, uh, which I can't remember the name of now, um, uh, about this thing, um, uh, about this issue, which was, uh, she sort of became, even though she didn't officially become, but her book sort of posited, here's an alternative city planning, which is, um, based on, uh, basically diversity, but I mean that in more than one way, 
racial diversity, sure, but also economic diversity, different kinds of people being in the same public space. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, like I was saying before, um, mixed use of buildings, diversity, having residential and commercial and recreational um, areas generally jumbled together. So people are living their entire lives uh, out on the street. Mm-hmm. You know, that the uh, the utopians thought of the street as being for automobiles only um, and essentially, you know, their plans largely did away with sidewalks as we know them. Um, and she and Jane Jacobs argued that uh, the sidewalk is really where the city is, where different kinds of people rub elbows bump up against each other are in one another's eyesight and uh and 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 coexist um that's that's actually what makes a city uh it's a fascinating documentary Hmm. uh citizen jane battle for the city is what it's called comes out at the end of april um anything else uh, anything you want to add to that uh no Okay. Um, Sorry, and, I had I had a lot of thoughts, but I realized like I don't have the energy to express. Them. I had uh, when I got home from the movie last night. Like I almost wish we'd done the movie journal last night because uh, my wife Natalie, like I talked her ear off about the movie. Yeah. Um, but, but she not that she was um, bored because this is you know housing is uh, something that she used to work in and, and is feels very uh, passionately about. Um, anyway, I guess here's my question. So. Jane puts forth an idea of the city mm-hmm. and it should be this. And I guess, well, that's not, it's the difference is okay. That the utopians started with the idea first and pushed it forward. Yes. She wrote a book based on what she observed okay. of what works in cities. Okay. That, that was and the so she had examples of this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cause like, frankly, as I, as you were talking, I just thought like that actually sounds really great. But then I thought, I, I don't know of any example. It's the economic diversity that you're referring to that. I was like, I can't think of any examples of that in the midst of a city. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, I mean, you say that, but like we've lived in Chicago and we've lived in Los Angeles yeah. and like, yeah, no place is perfect, but there's way more neighborhood diversity in Los Angeles than Chicago. Chicago is so strictly divided, uh, especially yeah. in terms of race. Uh, you know, there's, it, it really is. And I, and I, from what I've, I've heard people saying even more so since the, uh, 12 years since I left Chicago. Um, but, uh, Los Angeles does have, you know, you can be in different kinds of neighborhoods a couple of blocks away from one another. Yeah. Uh, and I mean that in terms of diversity, in terms of the kind of use and in term, and to some extent in terms of economic diversity, not, not as much. You're right. That's always where it tends to, to fall apart. I guess I'm thinking in terms of like my neighborhood now, like where I, where I've lived the last four years, it's not the nicest neighborhood in the world. Um, I like your neighborhood. I like it as well. Um, but I also recognize that it's just, there's not much sense of community in my neighborhood. Um, and I think it's because just as I look at the, there's no, there's no place for people to really convene. Um, Mm -hmm. oddly enough, and this is, uh, of course, just for me, uh, movie theaters are very communal spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, and while there is a movie theater, over on Van Nuys by, you know, uh, the, the Regency plant. And then there's one up 
right by the uh, the 118. Um, there's none in the really close to my area, hmm. and yeah. as opposed to. You know, where I used to live, there was yep. the Century 8, and then there was the Regency, uh, right. I forget what it was called, but the, the cheap theater. And yeah, I would go, and I saw all kinds of ethnic diversity. It's hard to know exactly what what how much money everybody was making, but, you know, yeah. it's... That's true. And, uh, and I have the NoHo 7 I can walk to, and yeah. that, that Regency I could drive my bike to, theoretically. I, yeah. I don't, but <laughs> I could. Um uh, yeah, but the thing that's happening in North Hollywood, uh, at least my part of North Hollywood, um, is like, it's on that thin line of like, there's becoming more of a neighborhood identity and more interaction, which is great because there's more bars and stuff, but then that's what leads to the gentrification that ends up pushing out the economic diversity. Right. And so we're kind of on that line right now. I mean, I've already, I've lived on my street, um, for seven years now. My wife's lived there for 10 years. Um, and I've, I recognize it just on, on, on my street that, that, um, there are, uh, fewer, you know, I mean, there were Natalie and I, as white people were the minority by far on our block when we, when we moved in. And now it seems to be a little more, more evenly, uh, divided, um, mostly between white people and Latinos. Um, uh, um, Anyway, I'm not sure where I was going from that, but it does seem like there's a there's a, there's a natural thing, you know. Generally, huge asterisk here, mm-hmm. but generally, gentrification is something that will happen naturally if you don't sort of try to, you know, make uh, make a, allowances for lower income income people. I think honestly, so not to stick only with movie theaters. I do think that's why the Century 8 is so important right now. So for those that don't know, in North Hollywood on Victory... Um, in Coldwater. Victory in Coldwater, there's a theater called the Century 8. And about a year and a, a year and a half ago, they just they renovated it. The seats are very comfortable. They just they redecorated it. It looks like a nicer theater, but it plays... It plays all the big movies. Yeah. It's, not, it's not a Lemley or something like that. Here's the thing. So it's a nice theater and it's to the point that like my wife loves it. And though there are theaters closer to us that if, if we're going to go to a movie, she wants to go there because the seats are super comfortable. It, it is a, it has become a nice theater, but they did not raise their prices. And so we go, you know, and, and I see all manner of people. I see people that yeah. are willing to go there cause it's a nice theater. And I also see people that can afford to go there and it's close to them. And I, it's one of the things that I like about it. And so the idea of keeping prices low, but also investing yeah. so that it's a nicer thing. That's actually a way that you can from it, maybe not as far as people living close to each other, but from a communal standpoint, that's what you can do. It's why if they were to revamp the Walmart near me, Cause it's a crappy Walmart. I don't know if you've ever been there. I've, I've not been in it's, there. No. It's awful. But, and then there's a, t- I think I pulled in there. I pulled into the parking lot once cause I saw the McDonald's sign and I was yeah. like, Oh, I'll go to McDonald's. And I realized McDonald's was in the Walmart. Yeah. And I was like, I'll, I'll go to Wendy's instead. That's a good call. But it's always <laughs> a good call to go to Wendy's. Um, that sounded like a commercial. <laughs> well, it's always a good call to go to Wendy's, but that's the thing is, and it's that Walmart is connected to a old, an old mall. And for a while, it looked like they were gonna they were gonna change that mall completely and turn and the, they would the, they would keep the shops, but they would make the hallway or common area outdoors. Like okay. they would 
they would literally tear the roof off the place yeah. and it would be nicer. And then they would, that would probably, I guarantee that would force businesses around there to be nicer. And, but the, but they wouldn't be raising any prices. Yeah. And so the idea of that as this is now a destination for people that might be in neighbor in, in other neighborhoods that are nicer, it's like, Oh, well let's go to the new panorama city mall. Uh, but they wound up not doing that, which really bummed me out. Not because I'm looking for nice things, but I like the idea of nice things in the midst of a neighborhood that isn't necessarily nice. And it might draw people who wouldn't normally come there. I don't know. It's, uh, uh, the idea of this documentary is interesting to me, but I, there's, there's a, a cynical part of me that wonders if it's even possible. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, finally, this is uh, why I didn't say anything. Uh, no, I'm glad you did. Please, we need. That was a good, good conversation and okay. a good argument for uh, movie theaters as damn as right community centers or hubs. Um, finally, I watched uh, a somewhat recent uh, Criterion Blu-ray release. It'll be a review up on the site. Um, hopefully uh, tomorrow, if not um, early next week, uh, a 1963 or 62 uh, Spanish film called The Executioner. Uh, and the premise here is that uh, our main character is a. Uh, he describes himself in the movie as an undertaker, but it's not what you think. He's essentially a driver for the coroner's office. He's a government employee who picks up dead bodies and drives them to the morgue or wherever they need to go. Um, and at the beginning he and his partner pick up, have a pickup at the prison, a, 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 um, uh, a man who's just literally just been executed. Mm-hmm. He's picking up the body and they decided to give a ride to the executioner. Who's an old man, even though there's a lot of superstition and like, uh, being an executioner is not, you know, uh, not something that anyone looks up to, you know, people find it, uh, shameful or whatever, but they give a, give him a ride home. And this guy ends up meeting the executioner's daughter and uh, they have a little fling that she ends up pregnant. They end up getting married. They uh, there's this um, essentially government supplied apartment, mm-hmm. a nice like three bedroom apartment or whatever um, that the executioner is going to lose because he's retiring. And the government's like, we're not keeping you there if you don't work for the government anymore. And so basically in order to keep the apartment as a place for his family to live, the younger man who finds what his father-in-law does um, unspeakable becomes the next executioner of the city of Madrid. Mm -hmm. Um, And now what I, uh, what makes the movie so fascinating and what hasn't been implied by everything I've said so far is it's a comedy. Oh boy. Okay. Uh, (laughs) It's a, it's a, it's a dark comedy in terms of subject matter, but not in execution. It kind of feels like a, like a sort of very, it's very sunny. A lot of it takes place outdoors. They they go to Mallorca at one point, like, uh, you know, sitting by the beach. It has this sort of fun, frothy comedy feeling to it, except what's running over uh, under everything is, uh, the, you know, how do you deal with taking a human life? Yeah. Um, and that, I think that that's very much by design what I'm, what I'm saying, because I think a lot of what the movie looks at is not necessarily is what the executioner does morally. Okay. But it looks at the other people in the city who are a part of the system mm-hmm. that, supports the death penalty in the ways in which they distance themselves or lie to themselves or ignore their, their participation or their, uh, complicity or complicitness, uh, complicity, I think complicity, um, in this system. And so the idea that it's a 
frothy, lighthearted movie uh, is, I think, um, um, you know, form following function, if you will. Yeah. Um, really great movie. The okay. Executioner. Criterion Blu-ray. Um, okay, so TV, it occurs to me, so okay. obviously Survivor, I watched Survivor. Sure. and it's, you can it's hear about good. that on Worth, uh, worth Playing For. But uh, in anticipation of the new series of Mystery Science Theater 3000 on on Netflix, they actually released like 20 episodes available, uh, existing episodes available on Netflix. And so um, I threw those on while I was honestly doing other things. But as tends to happen, I got the other things got pushed (laughs) aside. Yeah. And I was watching uh, MST3K. And, uh, you know, at this point, I think I've probably seen all of them. Uh, so some of these wow. were, were rewatches, but, uh, there's one called zombie nightmare. Um, have you seen it? I don't remember. It is delightful. Uh, the movie is awful. Um, of course, but, um, it, there's a few notable things. One is that it stars a young Sean Levy director, Sean Levy director of night at the museum. Yeah. And okay. so he plays this like this young punk that gets uh, gets killed by this uh, zombie. Uh, the chief of police or, or just a, a police captain or something like that is played by Adam West. And he plays this cynical guy who's uh, who doesn't care about the law, really. And he's he's not necessarily he's not. I don't think he's literally corrupt. I think he's just morally corrupt. Um, and so to see Adam West play that, it's it's rough because I'm seeing it in the context of MST three K. Whereas if I, if I saw it without that, I think I might be inclined to say it's a good performance, but Mm -hmm. because they're constantly incorporating Batman references, it's hard for me not to see it that way. Um, (laughs) but, uh, you know, and, but there is also this character, this happens so often with the movies that they talk about is the director just decides, Oh, we have this side character and we need him to seem it could be grizzled. It could be world weary, whatever it is. Um, you know, like in, uh, the final sacrifice, there's this guy who's sort of a mountain man type and his voice is like Yosemite Sam. It's ridiculous. No human has ever sounded like that. <laughs> and so in this, there's this coroner who, I mean, the minute he starts talking, you think, what was this director thinking? <laughs> he sort of talks like this. This is how he talks. Only more exaggerated than what I'm doing. Uh-huh. And so he's like, well, hey, Frank, how's it going? We got a bunch of dead, you know, dead kids here or whatever. It's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. And and it's but and so of course a lot of the jokes they they make are are hilarious but i just uh i really enjoyed it good stuff um did i tell the story when i discovered mst3k no um i'm doing the math i'm guessing this was the summer of 92 does that track for mst3k sure. and would that be the hod network at that point or comedy central i think it, i think it was comedy central at that point it was i think comedy it central? stopped being okay. ha I, there there was the comedy network and then there was ha they combined oh to become MST3K wasn't on Ha, right? It was on the Comedy Network. I think it was that. I'm not sure. So maybe now. this was, but you're saying at this point by 92, it would have been the Comedy Comedy Central already? I think so. Okay. So I didn't have cable. But um, that summer, as we did sometimes, uh, summers, my entire mom's side of the family went on vacation together. Okay. That was something, we would, you know, we're talking about 20, uh, 20 people. Sounds to, horrible. Um, it was okay. Um, because here's the thing. It sounds horrible to you, but... It actually means there's for a for a loner kid like me. Yeah. There's actually more 
opportunities to get away because everyone there's so many sure. people keeping each other busy. Yeah. If it's just the it was just the just the six of us. There's nowhere to hide. Yeah. Got it. Um, so we had uh, rented a bunch of condos in the same complex in Branson, Missouri. That's where we went um, uh, and spent like a week in Branson. Um, and you know, it's instead of like, I think we maybe went out to dinner once or twice, but mostly what we do is come back because the, the condos had pools and grills and stuff is like every night, my whole family had like just a big cookout Mm -hmm. and I would go hide, (laughs) you know, it's like, Oh, I know the condo's empty. Everyone's out here. I'm going to go hide and watch cable and sit in the air conditioning (laughs) because, uh, I I don't, you know, get a chance to, to do that. And, um, that was when I discovered MST2K and there would be just marathons on. Oh yeah. Um, uh, and it was also the first time in my life. Now you lived in that area near near Branson, so you probably yeah. dealt with this. Uh, my, my two memories of that trip, TV wise at least, are MST3K and commercials warning against boating and drinking, drinking and boating. Yeah, yeah. which is not something in St. Louis. You know, only three uh, three and a half hours away, you don't see commercials that say don't don't drink and boat. Oh, yeah. uh, but they were. And I'm sure there was even more of them near. Branson, like yeah, yeah, they were all yeah because of Table Rock Lake uh, yeah. being right there. Uh, so those are my memories of the summer of '92. MST3K and don't drink and boat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you just did so much drinking and boating. I have no doubt, but uh, it never sank in. And oh, never mind. 